Living Hope is a church striving to become a 21st century apostolic church. We are founded upon the belief that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God. We believe in the Great Commission and are endeavoring to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with love, mercy, and truth. Listen in as we share the Word and that through Jesus Christ, hope is alive. God bless you. You got your Bibles tonight. Turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses um, 11 through 14. Pastor texted and said he can hear you but just faintly. All right. Um, Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Amen. Somebody give us a thumbs up if you can hear just a little bit better. I know it's plenty loud in here, okay? Um, and I uh, want to read a little something tonight as we get started here. Um, one of the more humorous quirks of scientific history is the debate over who should get credit for discovering oxygen. Joseph Priestley, an English scientist and clergyman, is often given that honor because he was the first to publish his findings, doing so in 1774. Interestingly, Priestley originally called the gas deflostigated air. However, in 1772, two years prior to Priestley. Priestley's find, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele independently discovered the gas was vital to human existence. Strangely enough, the term oxygen didn't come into use until 1775 when yet another chemist, Frenchman Anton Lavasseur, discovered and named the gas we breathe. Lavasseur was the first to recognize oxygen as one of our natural elements. Regardless of who gets the credit, it's odd to think of a human discovering oxygen. I mean, really, does a fish discover water? The truth is that oxygen literally surrounds us every day. And even if we choose to call it deflostigated air, we can't live without it. And so when it comes to our relationship with the Almighty God, there are some things that we just cannot live without. And so in our text this, this evening, the Apostle Paul uses the word appeared and appearing. And he uses these to describe two very distinct and yet separate appearings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first, the Apostle Paul writes about the appearing or the appearance of grace. Verse 11 says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. I've always loved that verse because Grace didn't just come by itself, but the grace of God, when it made an appearance, it brought with it our salvation. And so this is describing the, the first coming, or literally the first appearance of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when the grace of God first began to be revealed in my life many years ago, it was definitely life-changing. It was that amazing grace that we sing about so much. I mean, have you really ever thought, where would I be today? Where would you be today without God's amazing grace? I, I can't help but wonder what the grace of God has enabled and empowered in my life. I mean, truly, where would I be without the grace of God? But it's the classic definition of grace. It's still the best definition. God's grace is his unmerited favor. Grace means that God has shown his undeserved favor, his unearned blessing upon my humanity, which could never deserve it and certainly never earn it. And for every one of us, this deserved, we, we, we would deserve judgment. We don't deserve, we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. We deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. But I'm so glad that he showed to us favor. When the apostle Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, he's referring to the embodiment of grace that came to us through Jesus Christ, who was, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, who was made flesh and dwelt among us. We, according to the word of God, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. But I love that last sentence that's attached to John chapter 1, verse 14. He says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's amazing to me as we begin to look at this and understand this and believe this, that we've got to really understand that God, when he manifested this grace, it came, it was full of grace. Verse 17, just three simple verses later, states something a little bit contrasting. For he says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I just love that idea that, that grace came through Jesus Christ. And he says the law was given by Moses, but grace by Jesus. And so it's not really that God's grace was missing from the Old Testament because no one has ever been saved in the New Testament or the Old Testament apart from God's, God's grace. And certainly we understand that God could have sent his son into the world to condemn the world and to judge the world. But the Bible is very plain in speaking in John chapter 3, verse 17, that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so when the grace of God appeared in history, over 2,000 years ago, it appeared in the form of a real man. It, it appeared in the form of Jesus Christ, a man who really and truly died to redeem you and I from our sin and to make his church a, a glorious church, according to the word of God, a church that is passionate, a church that is zealous for good works. I'm thankful to be a part of that church. And so tonight, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk, I'm going to refer to this as the first act of God. This first act, or if you'll allow me a little bit of license tonight, this first scene, this first act, that, that uh, this appearance or this manifesting of God's amazing grace, it had purpose in it. And the purpose of this first act is described in our text in verse 12 when it says that the grace of God brought with it that mere possibility of salvation. I want you to understand that it appeared for and it appeared with purpose. 
According to verse 12, it, it appeared for the purpose of training or teaching us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly blust and worldly passions and that we as the children of God, as the people of God, should learn or train or be trained how to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Now you know and I know that that's a difficult thing. It's not something that is just so, so simple and so easy, but it really is part of the plan of God. But up until this point, up until this place in history, grace, for all intents and purposes, has been a bit player, if you will, a supporting character. Uh, always an important role and, a, and, and definitely a very well-played role, but nonetheless, until this point, until this opening scene, uh, probably what we would consider a minor role. The grace of God is shadowed and typed and hidden throughout the Old Testament. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, it is almost like the God of heaven pulls back a curtain of time and the grace of God is manifested. It appears in the form of Jesus Christ and it is now no longer in a supporting role. In an instant, it becomes that lead actor. It becomes, it becomes the most important role in all of humanity. And so what was once would be considered a bit part or maybe even right, uh, some kind of uh, smaller role or some kind of le less considered thing is now the most important role in all of humanity. It, it, it was then and it still is now the headline event of all time. We as the church understand the importance of the grace of God. There's nothing like the grace of God. It is such an amazing thing. It is such a beautiful thing. It is such a glorious thing. But Paul begins to describe it and say that it appeared to us or it was manifested to us and we are the benefactors of that. I almost could see that maybe in the subtitles of, of the Old Testament as you would see at the end of a movie there would be a list of those, of those stars and, and obviously the, the headliners would be Abraham and Moses and Noah and Adam and all of those and David for sure and all of those great men of the Bible but somewhere down in that in that cast somewhere down in those lower credits would be that grace of God that was kind of hidden there shadowed there it could be seen it was a relevant part but it wasn't manifest it wasn't made it wasn't the the purpose but here in this in this first act when when the New Testament opens when that curtain is revealed and and this this scene opens up for humanity it is now a declaration of God it has come with purpose and reason and we celebrate that and it is such a vital role in all of humanity that sometimes we almost take it for granted but then there is the second act that we see in verse 13 of our text when the apostle Paul says looking for other translations say waiting awaiting for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This is speaking of the second coming of the Lord and and we certainly as the church we believe this with all of our heart that this will be a great and glorious event. 
And we've got to understand that first there was grace and then according to Paul, there's going to be this glory. And so in the apostle Paul's mind, when he's writing here to, to Titus, he's, he's explaining to Titus that these two events are linked and they are inseparable and they are somehow they are so very vitally important. I want to say to us tonight, even in your living room, even no matter where you may be to this evening, that the church cannot afford to lose sight of the soon return of Jesus Christ. To do so is to allow an all-out attack upon the true hope of the church. This same Jesus, according to the word of God, who appeared and brought grace and salvation to us is the very same God, this very same Christ who will come again to return to claim a glorious church. I, I just can't say enough, and certainly we've heard that recently. I believe Pastor Staten mentioned it not very long ago that we don't talk enough about the second coming of the Lord. Man, I, I just love this ideology and the idea of what's going on. But what I, I think I love is that verse 12 and verse 14 are, are like a sandwich. Then they wrap themselves around verse, four, about, around verse 13. But both of those verses, verse 12 and verse 14, they describe the objective and the purpose of God's first act, which is the grace of God. But there's a reason that grace appeared in the first act, and there's purpose for the grace moving from a bit player to the place of the starring role. But it is, it is wrapped here in the middle, that meat that is in the middle of the sandwich, and that is the hope that we have in God. Paul refers to it and calls it a blessed hope. Can I tell someone this evening that it is a blessing just to have hope? I, 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 we, we just have to understand that as the body of Christ, just simply having hope alone is a blessing. There are plenty of people in our world today who are in hopeless and desperate situations, but you and I have got to understand that this is something that is so vitally important, not just to the church, but to humanity to have hope. And so wrapped there in the middle. And so when you're eating that sandwich, it's visible to see the bread and maybe some of the wrappings. But the meat obviously gets kind of hidden in the middle there. And if we're not careful, we can celebrate grace. And I, I think we should. I think we absolutely should celebrate the grace of God. But if we're not careful, we'll begin to celebrate the grace of God to the point that we forget that there's some meat in the middle of this sandwich, which is our hope. The words that are used here for appeared and appearing in verses 11 and 13 in the Greek both mean obviously to appear, to make manifest, but inter interestingly, both of these words have a somewhat deeper undertone that describe not simply just an appearance or a manifestation, but they both have an added meaning of something that is building something upon something else. And, and so what I want you to understand is that the second act really has no value without the first act. If we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God is continually revealing himself to us. He's continually building upon the revelation that he's given to humanity. And this is true of the difference between grace and hope. And so what God's grace has begun in, in our lives through this first act, this great, and this great act of, uh, of grace and bringing salvation, the second act, the, the, the curtain revealing of this second scene of humanity is going to be an even greater event uh, and a more miraculous revealing, uh, not 
just, uh, not just of grace, but of the hope and the glory that the church has been waiting for. The second appearance, the second act that Paul refers to is the glory that is referred to as hope. But I think it's appropriate for us tonight to look, uh, I think it's fair probably to say that these four simple verses that are hidden here in a, in a letter to uh, one of the Apostle Paul's protégés in the New Testament, that, that there is incentive and ultimately power to live a fulfilling Christian life that is pleasing to God if we can look at it from not just one perspective but possibly two perspectives. It comes from the grace of God that, that came through Jesus Christ. And you and I need to understand that something happened over 2,000 years ago that we should all look back to, that we should have a lot of gratitude for. I know for sure that I'm thankful for the grace of God that has appeared at the first coming of the Lord. I'm thankful for his purchase of my redemption. I'm glad for every great thing that grace has brought into my life. I know that I am, I could never be more excited that we have the privilege to come boldly to what the writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4 and 16, refers to as a throne of grace a place where the people of God can obtain mercy and find more grace to help in the time of need. I think it's appropriate that we look back at our past and we, we together as the people of God become thankful because there was a first scene. There was a curtain that opened even before we were born. There was a, a place where humanity got a glimpse of the ability of God, but it, it also produces within us an incentive to look forward. And looking forward, but looking forward is different than looking back. When you look back, you're looking at something that's happened and it's a, it's a memory, it's a fondness. And, and so now I can say that after many years, the grace of God has already appeared in my life and certainly it will make its appearance again because I'm humanity like you are. But looking forward is just different than looking back. Looking back is reflection, and, and looking back is, is memory, but looking forward is, is unknown. And looking forward has to have some anticipation, but there's also coupled with looking forward that part of that we really don't like called waiting. It's in hope for that glory of God that's going to reveal itself at the second coming that our complete and final redemption is found. And this is, such, this is such a vital part for us because none of us really enjoy waiting. But the truth of the matter is that if we are not willing to wait, we will not find, we will not find that great truth of God. I believe that the writer in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 makes a great connection between the past and the future work of Christ as a great biblical text. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And he says, just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting, those who are eagerly looking for him to come. Certainly that is something that we all must make a part of our life. There's got to be an eagerness. There's got to be some earnestness in us that looks for it. 
So easy to get caught up in the, in the, the daily events of life and all that's going on around us and we fail to look forward. It's not even often anymore that we look back so much at the past and see where God has brought us from. But as the people of God, well, the thing that's going to keep us moving forward is that ability to look back and to look forward because this second act, this great curtain of God that is going to be revealed a second time is a curtain of completion. This passage teaches us that the saving work of Jesus Christ that began when grace was revealed, that began at the cross of Calvary, is not over. But when he one more time opens that curtain of time, it's going to be for the purpose of completion. I don't know about you. I know maybe you're sitting home in your fuzzy slippers tonight or maybe just finished your, uh, a, a nice meal, but I, I just can't get over the idea that this thing is not over yet, that I'm still in the process. I'm still walking with God, but one day there's going to be another revealing. One day there's going to be another opening to that curtain, and in that moment, in that time, there's going to be a completed work of God in my life. The truth is that too many people doubt this. Peter, this is not something new because they doubted it in the first century because Peter wrote about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers. You, you know what those are. Those are men and women that don't believe. They make fun. But they're, according to Peter, they're walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Because since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as they were from the beginning of creation. I want you to understand with me that a stripping away the second coming and our salvation is torn in half. It's, it's a half saving. It's, it's a half done process. You, you don't want a half baked cake. You don't want a half baked muffin. You don't want a meatloaf that isn't cooked all the way. You don't want it just put nicely in a pan, but you want a finished product. And it's no different with our salvation. We need to understand that we can't let the things of this world, we can't let the things that are happening around us in our world to cause us to stop looking forward. It's one thing to look back and be thankful for grace, but I'm looking forward to a hope. I'm looking forward to blessing. I'm looking forward to completion because he's coming to save those that are waiting for him. Maybe if there's someone with you tonight, look around the room and tell them I have hope. That feels really weird, doesn't it, to do it in your home and not so much in church. Hope probably in my estimation is like that little story that I read at the beginning of deflostigated air. It's just oxygen. It's just air. It's just all around us. And hope is the driving force of our salvation. But like air, I can't see it. I may even call it by another name, but whatever I call it, no matter what I refer to it as, it's still hope. But discouraging and depressing news is flooding into our nation, not even on a daily basis, but probably on an hourly basis. But it's beginning to affect the church and it's tugging at the people of God. And so we need God's help to lift up our heads and to lift up our hands and to lift up our hearts. And we have got to be intentional about casting out fear We've got to be intentional to follow the word of God and understand that he's not given us that spirit of fear, but we've got to build a positive Christian hope in the place of fear. 
Our world doesn't have any hope. They're just wishing that someone will find a cure for COVID-19. Well, they, they call it hope, but truly it's not hope. It's just wishing. The world, uh, they, they're, they're wishing that all of this craziness will just pass away, that it'll just somehow, the, the life, they're wishing that life will get back to, to, to normal, but they're, they're truly, they're calling it hope, but it's not really hope. So whether it, it will ever get back to normal or not, I, I don't know that. Uh, but, but what I do know is that one day soon that curtain of time is going to open and my expectation and your expectation, that hope that we have in Jesus Christ will no longer be hope. It will become the reality. You see, as I began to study a little bit of this, wish and hope are, are two English words that are very closely related. And we've got to understand the difference and make sure that we're hoping in God and not just wishing in God. Because the English word wish is, is generally used in a past tense. And, and though it could be used in the present tense, but it often talks about the regrets or the things that we want or the things that we should have done. I, I wish I hadn't made that mistake. I, I wish I'd started sooner. I, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. But hope is just slightly different than, than wishing because hope works in a future tense. And though it could be used in a, in, a, in, a, in a present tense, it more often focuses on our expectation. It was that old songwriter who penned these words. He said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I, I wish somebody could understand. He, he would go on to say, I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but I'm wholly leaning on Jesus' name. You've got to understand there's a difference between wishing and hoping. Wishing almost always brings with it a regret. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I wish, I, I wish that this could happen, but that wish has no foundation. That wish has no basis. But the hope that we have, that we understand that what the reality is, that the Bible says this same Jesus, he looked at those men on the day, on the day that Jesus was caught up into glory, and he said the same Jesus in the like manner that he went away, he's going to come back. And my hope is built not on what I want to happen or what I desire to happen, but my hope is built upon that true, everlasting, never-changing word of God. I'm telling you, you need to understand there was an appearing that was all throughout the Old Testament. He's going to come again. He's going to come. There will be born to us a Savior. And every prophecy that was ever prophesied came true absolutely 100%. And brothers and sisters, we can look on a Wednesday night and we can look at the word of God. And Paul said, you need to understand this was just the first act, but there's a second act. And my trust and my hope is there's going to be a second revealing. There's going to be a second coming. He's going to pull away that curtain. It's no longer going to be a bit player. It's going to be the starring role. It's going to be the greatest headline the world has ever seen. It's going to be the second coming of the Lord. He is going to catch away the church and then people will know that the church was real. Just because you can't see hope doesn't mean that it's not real. Just as my human body can't live without oxygen, no child of God could ever truly survive without hope. 
I want someone to understand you can't let your wish take your place of your hope. I, I don't want to regret. I, I wish I had done this and I wish I had done that. I don't want to wish that way, but I want to have hope and I want my hope to be based upon the word of God. If the Lord said it's going to happen, it will happen. I've got precedent in the word of God. It is true. But just tonight, even as the last few minutes of our Bible study, let me share with you some, some hope facts. Hope moves us forward like nothing else really can because hope is that realistic expectation and it is that joyful longing for a future that is filled with the goodness and the glory of an almighty God. What you've got to understand is that hope is not based upon a feeling or that wish, but hope is based solely upon that word of God that is forever settled in heaven. You've got to understand that real hope erases regret and it underlines expectation. It's hope that diminishes the drag and increases our momentum. The world is wishing that all of this would go away and that everything would change, but the church can't get caught up into wish. The church can't get caught up into that diminishing drag, but we can step forward as the people of God and begin to increase our momentum because we have hope in Jesus Christ. If it never changes, it still does not mean we're not the church. If COVID never goes away, you're still the church of Jesus Christ. It's not going to change your hope because hope is going to move you forward. What do you mean? What do you mean, Brother Roberts? I mean that if you're not moving forward, check on your hope. Begin to look again. If I'm not moving forward, I need to go back and look and be thankful for the grace of God that appeared in my life. But I need to look again to the forward side and say, God, I've got hope. I'm not worried so much about COVID. I'm not worried so much about pandemic. I'm not worried so much about what's going on in this world. I'm looking for something that's brighter and more glorious than the world has ever seen. Hope. It's hope that energizes the present. Oh my goodness. It's worth living today because tomorrow's eternity is so much brighter. You and I have got to understand that what is doomsday for the world is a coronation day for the church. What the world is dreading, the church often celebrates. What they dread most, we desire most. If you're a child of God, you're looking, you're waiting, you're desiring for that end of the world because that means when he catches away the church, the end of the world has come. That sounds crazy to our humanity. That sounds wild to us as people, but the reality is that we cannot sit around wishing that this would happen or that would happen, but we've got to base our hope upon the word of God. We've got to base our hope upon the fact that there will be a curtain that is torn away and every part of humanity shall see the glory and the power and the authority of God. But I would take it even a step further tonight that hope always brings light into darkness. You, you got to understand this. You've got to grasp this as a child of God. Hope doesn't deny 
the darkness. Hope doesn't remove the reality of the darkness. Hope doesn't, doesn't even disclaim that it's got painful realities. What hope does is hope shines brightly into the valleys of life. And no matter how deep I go and how dark it gets, there is a point of hope. There is a light of hope that is, that is somehow showing me that the sun will rise, that there will be another day, even no matter what happens to me, that no matter what happens, God will have a better day for me. I believe in our great generations, we have been so spoiled. We have been so spoiled by all that we have. The early church did not have nearly what we have. They were not nearly as blessed monetarily as we are. And we can get so caught up in, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't go here and, I, and we get wound up and I don't like this and I don't like this and, and we can begin to complain and whine and moan and you know what that is? That's because we're, we're dissatisfied. But hope will always bring satisfaction to the child of God. The apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter five the process of hope. He says that tribulation works or brings patience and patience brings or works experience and that experience is going to bring about hope. It's going to, it's going to manifest hope in our life. And he goes on to say that hope will not make you and I ashamed. That's, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how many people of God, how many good children of God are disappointed in this and disappointed in this. But one thing you will never have to be disappointed in is hope. Because other translation says this, says it this way, that hope will not disappoint. I don't know how dark it's going to get before the light shines. I don't know how long this is going to last. But my hope is not built upon the calamity of this world. My hope is built upon Jesus Christ. My hope is built upon the fact that one day heaven will open and the revelation, the second coming of the Lord will happen and my hope will be fulfilled. But even probably further than that, hope increases my faith. So wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. But you, 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 you do, you don't really quite maybe understand what I'm saying. But faith fuels hope and hope fuels faith. The writer in Hebrews 11 makes it very clear that these, these two, hope and faith, are, 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 are closely tied together. But what's really happening is that, is that faith and hope are energizing one another. Without faith, we, we will not soar in our hope. But without hope, our faith is going to limp its way home. You've got to know that the greatest believers are also the greatest hopers and vice versa. The greatest hopers are also the greatest believers. And I, I want you to understand as a child of God that you have got to have hope. But hope is something that you decide upon. Something that I decide upon. I determine where I'm going to place my hope. Put my hope in the government, disastrous. Put my hope in people, even though I know they love me and I love them, it could be disastrous. Put my hope in the things of this world, disastrous. But when we place our hope in Jesus Christ, when we put our hope on purpose, we direct and focus our hope, not wishing, no regret, not looking back with regret, but looking forward 
to that great day, to that coming of the Lord, and focus on that, you will become satisfied because hope cannot disappoint. But even beyond that, I believe this to be true about hope. Hope is infectious. It's true that we can drag each other down with negativity and casting blame, or, or we can choose to inspire and motivate one another as brothers and sisters through our hope. I wonder how much of a nuisance it is to you that we're doing this instead of having everyone here in the house of God. It certainly feels a little awkward to me to be here without all of you, but I, I, I'm glad that we're taking the steps to do what we can do to, to prevent more sickness. But understand, here's what the apostle Peter said. He describes hope as something that is infectious. He said this in 1 Peter 3 and 15. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is a, a your heart issue. It's a my heart issue. And you be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Understanding that, that my hope can encourage a brother, my hope can encourage a sister, but it also will have impact upon the depressed society, the unbelievers that are searching for a reason for the hope that they might see in me or in you. I wonder over the next week or so or a couple weeks or however it is, however long it is until we get back in this building, how many brothers and sisters have you reached out to? Oh, quarantine sounds like a four-letter word. It certainly is the word of the day, and it is necessary whether you believe it or not. We need to do what we can do, but understanding this, that even though the body is separated, we choose to be separated. We can reach out to one another. We can call one another. We can send text messages. We can find out how a brother's doing. We don't have to go by their house. We've got every means available to check on one another and to encourage one another. And that's what makes hope so infectious. I've got to sanctify the Lord God in my heart, and I've got to be ready and you've got to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in me. But finally tonight, I believe this, hope stabilizes in the storm. I read somewhere that there are 66 separate drawings of anchors in the catacombs and the caves and the tunnels that the persecuted Christians hid during that place where they hid during the Roman persecutions. You see, they allowed hope to become their anchor on those dark and stormy days. You know the word of God, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. He just says, which hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast. And we've got to understand that. If it's my job and it's your job to sanctify and make sure that hope that word sanctify is to cleanse or to set apart and to remove all of the wishful thinking and get all of that stuff out of there. But I've got to, I've got to, I, that's my job to sanctify the heart. But we've got hope as an anchor to the soul. You see, whatever happens to your heart is going to affect your soul. And so like, like an anchor, hope, when it is, when it is purpose, when it is put in the right place, when it is sanctified in the heart of a believer, it becomes that anchor that grabs the thing which is out of sight. I, I tell you, 
I think I, I told this story maybe even a couple of weeks ago. I took my wife out on my boat fishing, just her and I, not something that we do very often, just her and I, and I attempted to anchor the boat. But the current was running so strong and so rift, so swift in the river that I, I literally could not get the anchor to grab into the bottom. And I thought maybe it was something to do with my boat and my anchor. And I realized as we began to just change our, our perspective and we just began to drift and fish, I watched several boats come to the same place that we had been and try to set their anchor. And what I realized was that the current that we could not see that was under the water on a beautiful and calm day was running so swiftly that literally it was floating the anchors on my boat and the other several boats that tried to anchor that day. And it really began to bother me. I thought it was just me. And probably today you say, I, I just thought it was just me, Brother Roberts. I thought it was just something going on in my life. But you've got to recognize, and I've got to recognize that there are currents that are desiring to swift. They're desiring to, to, to lift the anchor off of that thing that is unseen, that thing that is out of sight. And so it cannot grab a hold. But what you've got to understand, what, what, what one Puritan said, he said, it's the cable of faith that casts out the anchor of hope and lays a, a hold of the steadfast rock of God's promises. Uh, you and I have got to get a hold of the promise of God. If, you don't, if you're not sure of that word of God and that promise of God, if you're not looking to a future hope, uh, then chances are when the current begins to run, even out of sight of you, the anchor will not grab, the anchor will not hold. Oh, I know the song, the anchor holds. That's tremendous. That's great. But any anchor can hold when the current is not running. But only those that are weighted by the promises of God, only those that are carried on the promises of God will have enough weight to, to go beyond the current of humanity, to go beyond the current of the day and the age that we live and grab a hold to something that is out of sight. How much hope do I need? I, I can't tell you that. I know for a typical boat, you have to have three times the length of rope to the depth. If you're in 50 feet of water, you need 150 feet of line to get your anchor to set because it's not a straight up and down thing, but it's kind of laid out there. I don't know what the future holds. You don't know what the future holds. This may just be the first pandemic of, men, of many. I'm not trying to be negative. We just don't know. But what I do know is that one day that curtain will open and there will be a revelation. And if you're not anchored in hope, if I'm not anchored in hope, if we allow our spirits and our souls to drift, the writer in Hebrews talked about that and talked about people that had made shipwreck of their faith. I'm talking to the church tonight. We had all of this momentum going, and all of a sudden, simply something happens, and all of the momentum is dead, and so many of you are discouraged. But my discouragement is not in the fact that we can or can't be together. My, my discouragement is not coming from that, but my hope is founded upon the promise of Jesus Christ 
that he will come again and he will. This is his church. It's a glorious church. We know this. We understand this. But I'm going to lift up brothers. I'm going to encourage sisters. I'm going to, I'm going to be the church if I have to be the church from my home. They never had a building like this in the New Testament. They never had a sound system or a camera. They couldn't have church at home. They, were, they, they did all kinds of things that were so different than what we're doing. But we are the people of God in a blessed age. And we're the church. And I want you to know that the promises of God will draw the anchor deep. Because hope always brings healing. And what the world around us needs more than anything is healing. I need to come to a close tonight. Hopefully, many of you have not already turned me off, walked away, or found something else to do. But that hope that I'm talking about tonight is just like the oxygen that's in the air. It's here in this room. Otherwise, I couldn't breathe. If, if there were no oxygen, Brother Plager and I, would we would cease to exist. But just like that deflostigated air, it doesn't matter what we call it or even who found it or, 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 or where it comes from, but we've got to have it. We have got to have it. It's my job. It's your job to sanctify my heart. What does that mean? Sanctification is always about repentance and cleansing. I, you can't have hope and I can't have hope without repentance. If something gets in your heart and begins to cause your hope to be moved into a different direction, that's a dangerous thing. So I want us to pray together tonight. Right there where you're at, I want you just to bow your head and pray for yourself. Heavenly Father, I pray over living hope tonight. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. So thankful are we for your grace. So thankful that you have placed grace in a throne that we can attain, that we can come to, that we can find, that will help us in the time of need. What a great revealing it must have been to be there on that day when it was revealed to all of humanity. But God, our hope is not based just upon that one act but we are looking forward to a second act. We're looking forward to a second scene. And God, I pray, God, that you would forgive me of any feeling or wish or, or any uh, issue that's going on in my life that is trying to move my hope. But God, I pray that you would let that promise of the word of God come to the minds of your people, Lord, because the promise is a weighty thing. The promise is a solid thing. And it's the promise of God that will sink beyond the currents of life and anchor us in the place where we will be ready and waiting and eagerly looking for your great return. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen to living hope in the coming days, but I plead the blood of Jesus over living hope. I bind the COVID sickness. I rebuke its effect upon the people of God. But Lord, I'm taking authority over that in Jesus' name. But Lord, I pray, God, for the hope of your people. I pray that hope would be settled and hope, God, would be manifest, God, that we would be eagerly looking and desiring for that great hope in your soon return in Jesus' name. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us on Facebook Live 
every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait.